Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley from the Thread Bible Podcast. Have you ever tried to make something, but it got so messed up that you just had to throw it all away and start over? Well, don't feel bad. It even happened to God. We're going to that story today, so stay tuned. Welcome to Thread, God's Word tying together all the pieces of your life through verse-by-verse study of the Bible. In season four, we're exploring the bedrock of the entire Bible, Genesis 1 through 12. Season four of the Thread Bible Podcast is brought to you by MedialiteOnline.com. And today, we're coming to you from Irishtown, Jamaica. And it's a beautiful place, high above Kingston. Jamaica is a vibrant And because of that noisy country, it's not, you can hardly find a quiet spot anywhere. I've done my best, but you may hear horns blowing and other things in the background, and we're just going to let that roll. Well, today we're studying the story of the flood in the book of Genesis. And you'll find that story in Genesis 7, uh, verse 1 through 8, verse 14. Interestingly, Most ancient cultures have a flood narrative, a story of the whole world getting wiped out by a big flood of water, especially cultures, the most ancient cultures we have, are from the Middle East, and this is one of humanity's oldest stories. Now, the way the story gets told from culture to culture varies greatly in the details. Some cultures, like Babylon's, Uh, They just have the story of the gods bringing a flood as population control because humans grew to be too big for them, so they just wiped them out with water. That is not the way the Bible tells the story. The Genesis flood narrative describes the flood as the purifying of the earth and that this purifying was necessary after the humans of the original creation went rogue and began to destroy the planet. And some, even in modern times in Christian circles, have characterized the flood event as the wrath of God coming on the world. But the Bible's own explanation really doesn't describe the Creator in any form of anger or outrage. He is said to be full of sorrow, full of regret that He had created humans in the first place. Yet, even as he accepted the conclusion that humans were the problem for the earth, his eyes fell upon a man named Noah, who was, though imperfect, really striving to remain loyal to him, although he was surrounded by human society that was opposed to everything God stood for. So, in wiping the earth clean from human corruption and malice, God spares Noah and his family of seven others. Noah is another Adam figure. He's going to lead the human race through a recreation of the world and hopefully to a better start in walking with Yahweh, the creator, as his imagers on earth. Now, the big drama in the original Genesis story of creation Back in chapter 1 and 2, the big drama actually starts at some trees in Genesis 3. And at the trees, humanity chooses to push away from God and to 
instead join the rebellion of the mm, serpent slash dragon creature, not a human creature, not anything that's described in creation, but this Nakash entices them to push away from God and rebel against him. Well, that big drama starts at the foot of some trees. But in this story, God instructs Noah to return to the trees, go to the forest, and this time cut down some trees. And these trees will save everyone in an invention called the ark. Now, Christians are going to connect cutting down these trees, the tree that saves everyone. Uh, you know, it hyperlinks back to the end of the Bible. And we've got the story of the cross as Jesus carries the plank uh, for his own crucifixion. So uh, in this earliest story, God instructs Noah, cut down trees. The trees will save everyone. And you're going to make something that's called an ark. And it's a new word, and it doesn't mean ship. An ark is a safe place. It's uh, spoken of here. This is the first place. Later, we'll see the baby Moses put in an ark and hidden for three months. Later, as a grown man, God will tell Moses to build an ark. And this one isn't a boat at all. It's not for water. Uh, and it's going to go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. The ark basically is a safe place. It's a micro mobile version of the Garden of Eden. And that's where uh, we pick it up in our story as it gets introduced in the Bible. We start in Genesis 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household. And so here we have God's invitation. And something we'll see throughout the Bible as God interacts with humans is that Free will is a sacred thing to the Creator. He does not violate human free will. His own name basically means freedom. I will be what I will be. And so when God is creating mankind in His image, humans get free will. And so did angels. When He created the heavenly host, they got free will. It's that important to the Father, although it is the most dangerous thing that he could do as a creator, but it is sacred to him. And so now uh, it's the offer of salvation. Even though Yahweh's salvation has been announced and he has declared his will openly to Noah and he's told him what his will has determined, he's going to purify the earth, he's going to save them, uh, and he's involved Noah in the building of this ark, and yet it's still the invitation of God to Noah and his family, and their free will is still in charge. They're outside of the ark as the rain is about to begin, and maybe even as the rain has come because of something we'll see in verse 7. And God speaks. It, it reminds me of the story of the virgin birth, of Jesus, you know, uh, an angel comes to Mary, informs Mary of the will of God. This is what God wants to do. This is God's plan. This is God's intention. 
and it involves you and your body becoming the host for his son. And she has questions about what does it all mean? But somewhere in this exchange, it's very clear to her that it it rests, this thing going forward rests upon her giving permission that it's her body. God has set it up that way. She's in charge of her own life, and he will not violate even her free will. In his big plan to save the planet, it's all on her, and she has to say uh, those words that the Beatles immortalized, let it be. You know, let it be in my body. Let it be according to your plan. She had to choose to offer her body and the rest of her life story to God for him to do what he wanted with her. And that's how God approaches all of us. Uh, nobody is at the mercy of just a uh, some kind of lottery from heaven. It's very clear in the Bible, God is not willing that anyone should perish. I mean, how clear, how much more clear can it be? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he deals with humans uh, always with an understanding that we have free will. We can accept an offer of salvation. We can accept an offer of transformation and a new life, or we can push it away. And no angel can make us choose God's will. And the Father himself will not make us choose his will. It is an invitation. And the New Testament says that in the hundred years that transpired between uh, God approaching Noah and now Noah has his children and they enter this ark, there's been a hundred years, so it's, it's very possible that building this ark took much of that time. Uh, the New Testament calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. So as people came to him to see this ark, this thing he was building, new thing, they'd never seen a massive project. And as people made the journey to come and see what he was doing, he took the opportunity to preach to them righteousness and to offer to them the invitation to turn from their ways. But they would not. So it's on us. Genesis chapter 7. So now in verse 2, God tells Noah, I want you now to get seriously ready about going inside of this ark, and I want you to take with you now all the animals. He had already told him about this. Every animal is going to come to you, and I want you to take seven of every animal that is ceremonially clean. We'll learn about that later in the first five books of the Bible. But somehow Noah had an understanding of what Levitical cleanness meant about animals, and so he was to take certain animals by sevens, and he was to take all the other animals by two, male and female. And he is preparing for covenant, and that'll be in our next episode as Noah builds an altar. Uh, Also, though, we have to understand in verse 2 that animals and humans are a package deal. Their existence is integrated. You know, all life on earth is one ecosystem. All of us live together. All of us die together. So when God is going to judge the humans, he says, and I'll have to destroy all the other living things too because we are one 
uh, community on earth. It's one system. And so verse 5, once again, says, And Noah obeys. When God speaks to him, he obeys. Look at verse 4. He says, After seven more days, and we're going to keep seeing the number seven in this story. Uh, After seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. I will destroy. And that matches verse 23, which says, so he destroyed. And we have bookend expressions about God's hand in this. You see, in God's judgment, The creation had been ruined. It was damaged beyond repair. And a fresh recreation was necessary, although it grieved him to see it because he would actually be the cause of it. And he would do that by simply withdrawing his protection from the earth for a season. And Noah, as he's always uh, characterized in verse 5, Noah did according to all that Yahweh commanded him. Noah's obedience makes a covenant relationship with God possible. Now in verse 7, as we go down, we see his wife, his sons, his sons' wives, and they came into the ark. Uh, and the reason is because of the waters of the flood. So the, uh, it seems to be a description that they are now fleeing the waters, as the waters are coming and they can see the rains falling from heaven and they can see the waters rising on earth and at the, this is the moment where you, you have to make a choice because the waters are rising all the way up to the ark and so they run in verse 7 into the micro-Eden safe place. We'll be right back. verse 10 after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth verse 11 describes and here we're going to run into a lot of the language of the original creation story Uh, we're going to get a lot of references that kind of point us back to that story only now it's not a creation story it's a decreation of the world because uh, if we had the time when we went back to Genesis chapter 1, we would see that the world begins with darkness and the chaotic deep, the abyss. And now the abyss opens up again. You know, the first Genesis story has God conquering darkness and conquering the abyss, and from down in the abyss rises earth. And it rises up above it, and now it, you know, it's got dry land, only it's all going backwards now. It's a decreation, and the world sinks back into the chaotic deep, and the deep rises up. And in verse 10, the rakia, that firmament that protects us from the dangers above, the, you know, the deep is the danger below. 
and the rakia protects us from the danger above. So the deep rises from below and the rakia, the, the shield above the earth, is loosened up and, and is cracked and waters pour down. And now again we see the power, the tohu vabohu, all, you know, because this, this default state of the universe to destroy life, to tear it all down. And all of this happens now to the earth. And the only thing that's, need, that's needed is for Yahweh to stop pushing back the relentless forces of chaos. These forces are there every day. They work to destroy creation 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They are always pushing to destroy us. All the other planets are already in a lifeless state, and now you have earth alone because Yahweh has made it his throne, and he is protecting it. Only now he starts to release his hand of protection, and the deep swallows everything. It's a horrifying moment. And, you know, it's a moment that was promised for a hundred years. It's a moment that Noah preached about. It's a, it's a moment that they wondered what it would be like one day. They couldn't imagine what this was going to be. There had not been a flood like this, a rain pouring down from heaven. The, the deep, the watery uh, beneath the earth, it, had, it was sealed, and now it's been cracked open, and the water's flooding up. They could not imagine this. They tried to, and they discussed it. You know, who knows how many nights they had discussion around their family meal about the the promised judgment that's coming. And now it's a real day. It's not a fairy tale. They don't need faith. They don't need to believe it anymore. It's here, and it's real. And, you know, one day it's going to be real again, the judgment on all humans and the purification of the earth again, it's going to be real. Earth won't be destroyed, but it will be purified. And God's new kingdom will be established. And it's going to happen. Everybody's going to be so shocked in that day that it is really, you know, it's, it's reality. It's no longer a story or a doctrine or a belief, but it is happening upon the earth, and the, the Noah story tells us, use the time you have to prepare your own soul, to prepare your mind, to prepare your heart with your daily choices of obedience. Prepare yourself for these dark times that are coming because they come swiftly, they come in a moment as Yahweh judges the earth, but it's a time of salvation for God's people. It's a time of judgment for those who oppose him, but it's a time of salvation for those who cooperate with him and who are loyal to him. Now, verse 13, uh, everyone enters, they get inside of this ark, all the animals come in, the cattle, and here we have the repetition of the Genesis language uh, from chapters 1 through 3, every creeping thing, uh, every bird, um, two by two. Let's look at verse 15. They went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and Yahweh shut 
him in. We have God's protective hand on the lives of his people. God makes a difference between his people. He doesn't just uh, randomly destroy. When it's the day of justice and it's the day of judgment and it comes on the earth, there's a, there's a mark on his people and it's a protection on them. And so God now calls the earth to account and he shuts his people in. It reminds me of Isaiah's passage. Uh, in Isaiah 26, verse 20 and 21, he says, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, Yahweh comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And so 40 days begins. And in the beginning, Yahweh had told humans to multiply. But in verse 7, 17, instead of humans multiplying, uh, they had multiplied violence upon the earth. And now it says waters multiplied. And humans were told to have dominion over the earth and over all the life on earth and to rule this earth to rule them firmly in his image. But now waters rule. They rule over humans. They rule over human authority. And where humans have failed to multiply as God's image, the waters obey and they multiply. And the waters prevail and they rise. Verse 18, the waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And that's interesting because now the ark, like the, the Spirit of God, like the Ruach in Genesis 1, the ark is moving on the face of the waters, this little micro Eden, this safe place where you can't be hurt. The ark is floating around. Verse 22, and all in whose nostrils was the breath of the Ruach, the Spirit. Uh, and again, that, that word again, uh, the Ruach of God. The Ruach is the breath of God. It is the Spirit of God. It is the wind of God. And it says, all who had the breath of the Spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. You know, our life, again, the Bible teaches, is borrowed from Yahweh's own life. All of our life is spirit, and it's from his spirit. And we get a piece of his life, and it is completely dependent on him to sustain. So he gives us his spirit, and it enters us at birth. And we take our first breath of his wind, of his air, of his spirit, of his life, comes into us, and the last thing we do is breathe it out. It's his from the beginning to the end, he has to sustain us. And here, everything, human and animal, gives back the borrowed breath of Yahweh. And down they sink, and the deep captures them all. Verse 23, so he, Yahweh, destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and and cattle, creeping thing, and bird of the air, they were destroyed from the earth. And only Noah 
and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And so it has come to pass, the judgment and the cleaning, the purification of the earth so that everything that defiled the earth is now wiped away. And we move to Genesis chapter 8. And God remembered Noah. His name is interesting. It, um, there's two words, and we get it in, uh, in chapters 1 and 2, chapter 2 of Genesis, uh, where it says, and the Lord rested, sorry, chapter 1, where it says the Lord rested, you know, that word rest is, uh, is that word, we get Sabbath out of it, Shabbat. And so God ceases his work, and he settles in. And once you do that, then you can knock, because uh, that word means it's you've settled into your comfort now of not, not working, and restoration is coming into you. You know, you're being rebuilt. And his father had named him Noah, Noah. And verse uh, 1, chapter 8 says, God remembered Noah, and he remembered every living thing. Now, this is not related to forgetfulness. It just means it's like a decisive, uh, decisiveness of a thought. Uh, Later on, we'll get this exact expression about Israel and their sufferings in Egypt. And it'll say that God remembered Israel in their suffering in Egypt, and he sent them Moses. So here it says, God remembered Noah, and he remembered all the living things. And in remembering, it, it calls you to do something active. And so the next line says, and so God made a ruach, a wind, a spirit, a breath, pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. And now we go back to creation. You know, we had decreation, and the deep rose up, and the Rakia opened up, and now that's shut down. The Rakia is closed. It's safely protecting the earth again, and the deep has now been told to go back down into the recesses of the earth, and it's being locked off, and the Spirit of God is again hovering over the waters, and God is, is working again. He's working at recreation as he stops up the deep and seals the Rakia and again restrains the forces of chaos. And the fountains, verse 2, fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded continually from the earth. Verse 4, and then the ark rested. See that word? It's that word Sabbath. Uh, Same thing, seventh day, God rested. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, in the 17th day of the month, on the mountains. In an English Bible, it often says, of Ararat. Uh, A lot of other translations do not have that word because there's a mountain range in Turkey, and there's a mountain there called Ararat, and that does not appear to be what this is all about. It's the mountains, plural, of a region. In this region, uh, the word is very, it's the word for curse. It's very close to the exact word curse. So 
here the ark, the safe Garden of Eden, which was a mountain fortress. Uh, it's, uh, that's where King's Gardens are, and the rivers flowed down out of Eden to the world, so it was in a higher place. So now here comes the ark, the little micro-Eden, and it rests, it, it Shabbats, and it rests the little Eden back on top of a mountain, and this, what mountain would it be? Well, Eden has landed on top of, and Eden is here to to be on top of it and to redeem Mount Curse, because that's what that word means. So the ark is now resting on top of redeeming the mountains of curse, because it's been a cursed earth, and God wants to roll that back. And they, uh, they just sit there for a while. Stay tuned. Chapter 8, verses 6 through 13, the earth is wiped clean. And Noah begins to test again earth's readiness to receive life a second time. The Eden, the little micro Eden, can open up the doors and life can pour out back into the earth. And the recreated earth can burst into life again. And the male raven tries and can't find anywhere to rest. The female dove is sent out in a a series of three attempts. And these are spaced every seven days with these birds. And, uh, you know, seven is, as I said, it's a really important number. The series of seven days on the seventh day, God rests. Let's just... Take a little detour here for a second. Look just at sevens. You can see there's other numbers that keep occurring in this story. And I don't want to go down every one of these trails because I think it's tedious just to hear it. But uh, in writing, there are a lot of things that are being done on purpose with numerology here. But let's just stay with the number seven. Genesis 1-1, there's seven words in Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-2 has 14 words. There's seven days of creation. Cain says, I will be avenged seven times. Cain's seventh descendant is Lamech. He's the symbol of evil. Um, there's seven of every clean animal that's supposed to go in the ark. Noah is, sa- is like a savior figure. He leads seven righteous people into the ark. With him, Yahweh says to Noah, in seven days from now, I'm sending rain. Noah waits seven days every time after he sends the dove, and he does it three times in a row, and you could do the same thing with threes. Um, The ark comes to rest when? In the seventh month, just as God rested on the seventh day. And we're going to see as Noah's sons and their wives began to have children and the children's children and go out there are going to be 70 nations that descend from Noah's three sons. Um, and so you got this numerology that's just like going crazy to emphasize the seven days of creation and the last of those days when God enters into his rest and he invites his people to enter rest with him. 
So now we're in a new day, and it's the 601st year of Noah's life, and wouldn't you know it, the first month of the first day, and time basically resets, and we have a fresh start, uh, just like the Jewish festival of Rosh Hashanah in October of every year. And so the world opens up for business, chapter 6, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 6. So it came to pass, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark he had made. And I've already told you about the birds. And let's go down, verse 11. Now the dove came back in the evening with a freshly picked olive leaf in her mouth, and Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth, so he waited yet another seven days, and he sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. And so the waters were completely dry in uh, verse 14. Noah removes the covering of the ark. The surface of the ground is completely dry, and verse 14, everything begins to go out because in verse 15, God spoke to Noah and said, now go out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives, and bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful. He loves to say this. It's his heart. Be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So if you want to know what God's will is for you, it's that you be fruitful and multiply on the earth. He wants growth. He wants the dynamism that's in humans and in animals to go forth. He wants things to develop. Verse 18, so uh, obediently again, Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Verse 19, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever moves upon the earth according to their Families, and I, I'll just maybe end on that. According to their families, went out of the ark. One of the things that's happened in describing animals throughout the uh, flood story, I didn't point to it, but uh, human um, human words are used to describe animals also. Like when it said, "Take them two by two into the ark," in chapter seven, verse two. Take every animal, male and his female. The Hebrew says a man and his wife. Uh, and all the way through, it's man and his wife. And here it's the animals went out by families. And that same community sense that humans have, God applies it to the animals as well. God's human here. If you look at this picture, God's human comes up from the waters and is greeted by the comforting sound of God's own voice. And we're going to see this again in the New Testament as Christ comes out of the water at baptism and there is again the comforting voice of the Father. Now, um, I've always wondered, as I began to seriously look at Genesis, I wondered why the Noah story gets so much, the flood narrative, you know, it gets a lot of space compared to other things that I wish we knew a lot about, you know, a lot more about, uh, like <laughs> chapter 6, verse 1, uh, these guys coming out of outer space and having babies on earth. Uh, I want to know a lot more about that, but God gives the space to the flood narrative 
not just to the, yeah, there was a flood, but it's to, yeah, but this is a restart of the earth. You know, the same way that this uh, season of COVID has sort of reset uh, human society on earth for something. I don't even know what yet, but you can see it's changed every nation. How can that be? You know, it wasn't that big a plague, and uh, but it's changed all the nations in their behavior. Well, this is a change, and it's a change in, we'll see it in the next episode, it's going to be a change in God's uh, approach toward the human problem. Uh, and this story is, is really a big deal. Noah is a big deal, and what he represents, and coming up out of the water, this really... The New Testament church grabs a hold of this story, and Peter connects Christian baptism directly to the story of Noah's salvation from the great flood. And uh, you can check it out, 1 Peter three eighteen through 22. Peter says that baptism is a type of God's ark, that you know, the ritual of baptism is a type of God, of like going into God's ark. And that this ark saves us alive when God purifies the earth. So we go down into the waters. You know, the waters are the deep. And in baptism, we go down into the waters of the deep. And we would be destroyed except for the hand of God, which is on us. And he preserves our life and he pulls us out of the waters of the chaotic deep. And chaos does not destroy us. And Peter says that's what baptism teaches. It's a type of the salvation of God's ark, this ark that saves us alive. And God purifies the earth from the pollution that rebellious humans bring as they defile the good earth. But the ark saves. The story of the ark, the ark that saves eight people from the entire human population. Uh, It's also another thing. It's the birth of remnant theology in the Bible. Uh, Remnant theology, well, I'll just describe it here. You know, the crucial thing to the Creator God in this story is to discover which humans on earth are loyal to Him. And throughout the Bible, as far as I can tell, if you say, what does God want? He wants loyalty. He is not, I don't think He is expecting, and you can't see it in any of His interactions with humans, that he expects absolute moral perfection. You know, you don't earn a relationship with Yahweh through moral perfection, and you do not lose your relationship with Yahweh because of moral imperfection, and that's really good news. But that relationship is not just some kind of, and this is where I think we've gotten weird in our theology, that there's just some kind of contract deal with God and there's nothing from humans that, like, our free will has nothing to do. I actually really don't like extreme Reformed theology. I think it, I think it, I think it makes God a monster uh, who just has a heavenly lottery and just chooses for hell and heaven. And whatever scriptures you want to go pull in proof text that you want to prove that kind of thing and say, aha, here's a verse about it. Just keep banging your head against God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Scripture interprets the Scripture. You have to put it all on the table together before you start building your neat little theologies. Uh, 
What I see in Scripture is God will not violate human free will. Free will matters to him, and humans must choose him. They must choose to be loyal to him, frail though they are, and we fail him in so many ways. Simon Peter's life is such a great example, and I think that's why we, we really like him, uh, because he's like all of us. The crucial thing to the creator, because the entire story of the earth is about the reclaiming of the Garden of Eden. God is determined to do two things. One, go get his original vision fulfilled. He wants this planet to be the halfway point, the, the merger of a spiritual world and a material world. He wants it to be his, his throne. He wants it to be his home. And he has created a completely material race, the human race. And they have been given free will, and they have the capacity to be loyal to him. Most choose not to be loyal, but some are loyal to him. And it does not matter to the creator how few these people are. Because throughout eternity, their impact on the earth will be multiplied. It's like, uh, you know, if... uh, if you plant a field of cucumbers and in the early harvest, you know by tasting them, these are bitter. And you know the same seed is in the entire field. It is your field and you can rip all of that plantation up. And if you can find a new seed, no matter how small, how few, that is sweet cucumbers, you can begin again. And you can multiply until your field eventually is nothing but sweet. We're dealing with an eternal God and his determination that this will be his sacred home and that humans will freely choose him and not mess up the creation. And so I think this whole world history is God's search for loyal humans. And remnant theology begins with Noah that it doesn't matter to God that there were hundreds of thousands of humans, maybe millions, we don't know. Because really the spike, 80% of all the people who have ever lived in the history of the world are alive right now. If you look at human population growth, it was a tiny hovering just above the land, and then the math kicks in 100 years ago, and it just goes straight up like a rocket launch. Um, The story of the ark is God is willing to save eight people from the entire population. And with them, he can repopulate using good seed. And we're going to see that concept over and over again. And Jesus is going to say, broad is the way to destruction. Narrow is the gate to eternal life. Take that gate. Nothing else matters except being one of that number, get through that gate. Do you have to be perfect? No, that's clear. The blood of Jesus covers our sin. We wrestle with sin. We have to choose to line up with God and we'll fight all these things. But transformation is possible for us. But the thing that is already possible is that you can be loyal to God. The remnant must be discovered. The remnant must be preserved at all cost. 
And that's what this story is the beginning of teaching. It's going to be the remnant of Israel. Later, it's, it's the pure remnant in the middle of um, a diverse Israel that often does not love him and actually serves other gods, but yet there's still some, and God knows their names. Remember the story in the prophets when the prophet says, I am the only one of your prophets left, and God says, that's not true. There are others, and I know who they are. I know the number of them. They have never bowed the knee to Baal. And so the Lord knows his loyal ones. And so we end this story now as God begins again to bring new life, to bring new breath to a created, recreated world. And everything is fresh and clean and reset for its original perfect purpose once again with a with hopefully a remnant you know these eight have not had a spiritual transformation that's the story of what Jesus comes to bring he can take out as later we'll we'll hear Jeremiah and others in the prophets say the problem with humans is their heart and this is what we're going to look at the kind of transformation that is needed inside Uh, And God's commitment to have a people that are his own and to have a people on this planet and that this world will become the paradise that he intended. You can be part of it. You can be part of it. This can be your story that you chose to be loyal to God. And if you choose loyalty, then, my friend, you can expect God to use you because you are the light of the world. We'll see you next time on Thread.